Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. I hope you had a great Halloween. Last week I put out three episodes, and I'm backing off the accelerator just a little bit for the next couple of weeks. I'll have a new episode out each Thursday. And on this episode, I have writer-artist Phil Hester. I've wanted to catch up with Phil for a while because I've loved his work that he's done through Dynamite Entertainment. That's where I first saw his work. Green Hornet, Green Hornet Legacy, Bionic Man, Black Terror, Gold Key Alliance. For Marvel Comics, he's worked on Irredeemable Ant-Man, and for DC, Swamp Thing, Green Arrow, The Flash Season Zero, and a lot more. Phil is also the creator of the Eisner-nominated character, The Wretch, originally published through Caliber Comics and Slave Labor Graphics. His most recent work is through Aftershock Comics, Shipwreck, and Blood Blister, and we are going to get an update on both of those projects and his upcoming project for DC Comics with artist Steve Rude, Future Quest, starring Birdman, a three-part story starting with issue number five coming out on December 20th. Now, after this interview, stay tuned. You can learn how you can win two weekend tickets to the New Jersey Comic Expo, a family-friendly celebration of comic books and everything pop culture that takes place November 18th and 19th at the New Jersey Convention and Expo Center in Edison, New Jersey. But now, let's get on with my interview with Phil Hester about his creation, The Wretch, Shipwreck, and Blood Blister. But first, I ask Phil about his earliest days of reading comics. So, let's get started here now on Creator Talks. So, Phil, welcome to Creative Talks. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, and uh, I want to start out, we're going to talk about Blood Blister to Birdman, but I want to ask you a question. The first comic that you picked up, Iron Man, I believe it was 118, everyone has a golden age of comics, their own golden age, and that's about the time I got into comics, too. Do you remember where you bought that book and where you read it? Because certain books just stick in my memory when I was a kid. If you ask them, friends of mine, I remember certain things like, I guess this says a lot about what's really important to me. Like if we go out to eat in a group of friends, I can usually remember what that group ha- had ordered like indefinitely into the future. So like if, <laughs> so if we're at a restaurant again, like four years later, I was like, Oh, last time here you had the smothered pork chops and this would be like five years later. So I remember that I remember um, what theater I saw a movie in. And I usually, I remember what comic shop or convenience store or grocery store I bought a comic book in. And um, I have to clarify, though, that issue of Iron Man is not the first comic I ever bought. It's the first comic um, that made me, that inspired me to uh, be a cartoonist myself. Um, Because I think, um, if you know the story, it ends on a cliffhanger with Tony Stark being thrown off the helicarrier without his armor. His armor is in, is in his attache case. And as he's falling, he puts the armor on. Well, the cliffhanger is he's tossed off the side, and you don't know if he, he's got the armor in the attache. So uh, when I was a kid, you know, you, don't, you never knew if you were going to get the next issue of anything. <laughs> you know, right. Because oh, yeah. you're buying it with lawn mowing money or paperboy money or whatever. <laughs> and also... You don't know what's going to be on the stands. You don't know if, you know, your local TG&Y is going to rip the cover off and, and fraudulently send the cover back to get, <laughs> you know, and then oh, yeah. sell it in a book, you know, a, a, for a nickel later. Um, so you, you just don't know. So I couldn't wait. So I drew my own, my own 
continuation of that story. And it really fired me up to think, well, maybe, you know, I, I think I was about 12 years old, 11 or 12. And I thought, man, maybe I always liked comics and I always liked drawing and I always liked stories. And I, I don't know why it didn't enter my head that, you know, maybe I could be one of these people that I see in the credits box. And um, that's sort of what kicked it all off. But anyway, I bought that issue in um, a Safeway in Yukon, Oklahoma. Do you remember where you read it? <laughs> uh, I read it in my bedroom at home. Okay. Yeah, for me, I had like two places I went to for all my comics. Around that same time, there was a 7-Eleven within walking distance of my house. And I would usually read the books either in my room or in my treehouse. And, uh-huh. and then uh, one near my grandparents, they had a drugstore, the old drugstore. And they had their comics there. And I would, that was within walking distance. And I'd grab the comics and go back. And at that time, I had a terrible diet. It would be my grandmother's iced tea and tasty cakes. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. <laughs> That sounds like a great, uh, yeah, it used to be kind of a ritual for me to get like, um, I was, I had a job, I was a bag boy at a grocery store from like age 13. So like, uh, pretty early I was working and it used to be a ritual. I'd get off, get comics from the drugstore and knock down like a box of pop tarts. And that's back, (laughs) and that's back, but that's when pop tarts were six, not eight. So it was, it's not qu- quite as diabetes inducing as it mm-hmm. would be today, but I would, you know, I would, it would be pop tarts and warlord for me, you know, mm-hmm. but I had a similar experience to you. I, I, when I moved away from Oklahoma about that age, I moved to Iowa and it was tougher to get comics. I had to go like to the next town over because I, I lived and still do live in a very tiny town of about a thousand people. And uh, I mean, I moved away to go to school and, you know, for career stuff, but I came back here to raise my kids. To get DC Comics, I had to go to a town 18 miles south of here to a to a, a Rexall. And to get Marvel and Charlton Comics, I had to go to a town 13 miles north of here to uh, a Ben Franklin. So, yeah, I... That was my... That was as close as I got to, like, having a comic shop back then. Do you remember your first comic? My first ones were like hand-me-downs, or my dad would buy them when I was sick and bring them home from the you know, drugstore. It had to be a hand-me-down like that. Uh, but I can't tell you exactly for sure what it was. I, re- my, I had kind of, um, I wouldn't call them hippie uncles, but they were like, um, uh, they were kind of hippie-ish uncles, you know, but not, you know, peace and love and pot kind. They were just like everybody was in the late 60s, early 70s, kind of long-haired people that are into counterculture stuff. And they had those Ween and Rights and Swamp things that came out when I was about five or six. And so to, to see him, you know, when I was like 11 or 12 was, was pretty thrilling. And they had a bunch of DC, they had a bunch of Adam and Hawkman comics and, you know, just stuff like that that really kind of turned me on. And they had some uh, early E-Man comics, which I really connected with, the Joe Staten comic, the Nick Cutie, Joe Staten book from Charlton. And I really connected with that book. So um, I think I've said in other interviews that the reason my style is so wonky is because it's a a misguided attempt to reconcile, you know, bouncy, cartoony Joe Staten on one side and murky and creepy Bernie Wrightson on the other, kind of mess in the middle. Yeah, some of your favorite comics I read, Swamp Thing, like you mentioned, Tomb of Dracula, 
Werewolf by Night. Were you drawn to the horror comics more than the superhero ones? Yeah, and I don't, I can't tell you why, but I mean, not, not to the exclusion of the superhero ones. I love those two. So um, I was just more, I, I mean, I read war comics, I read westerns. Um, I mean, I would even read Archie in a pinch. But yeah, I was just drawn to all the genres because I was just drawn to the comics format for one thing, but also to sort of the epic, heroic kind of storytelling. You know, humor comics didn't make a huge impact on me, but um, I mean, I enjoyed them and I read them when they were around, but I didn't seek them out the way I sought out horror and war and superhero comics. Yeah, same for me. I did have a stack of Archies. They were usually given to me and I read them. They were okay. But I don't have a very strong memory of those. It's mostly the superhero ones and some of the horror ones that I remember the most. Do you hope someday to get to work on Werewolf by Night? Because I've seen you lament that there isn't one right now, and we really need one. I, I'd like to see one. <laughs> and I've also I've also retweeted a picture, one of my favorite photographs of all time, that my friend Jason Kasky sent to me, which is a picture of James Brown James Brown enjoying an issue of Werewolf by Night. Oh, neat! Backstage, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, but you know, I, I, I don't know how much of that has, I mean, I do like the Jack Russell character and I like, I like a wolf manny werewolves, you know, I like the wolf man style more than the dog style. Honestly, I think the view of the appeal of Werewolf by night to me has to do with, uh, Mike Plug mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and Gil Kane covers also and Don Perlin to another extent, but. Uh, mostly Mike Flug. Yeah, I remember that. I, I bought a couple copies of that towards the end of the run. It's one of those books that kind of stands out in my mind. Like I remember where I bought it. My sister had to go to ballet class. Now, I had to go with her, my mom, so I was bored to tears. But there was a 7-Eleven next to the ballet dance school. So I went over there and found a copy of Werewolf by Night. And I read it behind the school, like in the woods. I sat in the woods there. Good place to read a werewolf book. And it was the one with the werewolf and uh, Iron Man on the cover. I think it was like issue 42 or something, almost like the last one. I, I think Perlin might have done that one too. But I know what you mean about Mike Plug's art because uh, he's amazing in Where of My Night. So I went and found some of his old uh, – I can't remember the exact name of the title. It was Frankenstein or this Monster Frankenstein. That monster, was, monster Frankenstein. Monster yeah. Frankenstein. That was amazing too. Some of those early issues packed a lot in there. They had a lot of Plug and, they had, and then not too bad that to have John Buscema and Val Mayerick follow you up on those books. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> to your creations – one of yours, your, create, your most successful creator-owned one that you uh, got an Eisner nominee for back in 1997 was The Wretch. And that started a negative burn. Joe Pruitt had uh, edited that book, The Caliber Anthology. Number 23 was its first issue, first appearance. Do you think you'll ever get back to that? I'm. <laughs> it's funny you should ask that because I'm working on a story right now. Um, there's an outfit in Omaha called Omaha Bound. And they got their start as sort of a bindery that would bind um, people's comic book collections for them and these nice hardback volumes. And uh, they made so many connections with professionals that way um, that they decided to get into publishing. And they approached me about doing like a special edition or omnibus of every wretch story. And I said, that's a great idea. Uh, but I think to make it worth people's while, we should put in one new story. And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, just whip up a nice little quick short story. And as <laughs> as I started working on it, it slowly grew and grew. So now it's a not quite that short. It's twelve pages now. I originally did six, but but I'm still in the I'm still pretty much right smack dab in the middle of it. But yeah, I'm working on that character right now. 
Oh, that's great. Because I remember back before Valiant relaunched, they started republishing some of the early Valiant books. And I think they had put in a new Exo Man of War story in that collection. So that's kind of the same idea as you have all the, the entire collection plus a new story. Yeah, I wanted to sort of make it worth uh, – because, not, I mean, well, it actually was a long time ago. Um, slave Labor uh, put out every red story to date in three trade paperbacks. So those are out there. Since then, there's been a couple odd and in, you know, little short stories that aren't in those collections. But I still feel like for people that went to the trouble of buying those trade paperbacks, we should give them something new. So, but that's also what's making the book late because <laughs> it was supposed to be done in September. And here we are at the end of October and I'm not done. But, um, I, I hope it's worth a wait because it's, um, it's a story I'm really proud of actually been working on since probably the first issue of the comic. I've, um, I have, I could probably do another six issues of the book just on undrawn scripts that I've already written. And, um, this is one of my favorites. So it's, it's sort of me finally getting around to <laughs> drawing it 20 years later. I'm looking forward to seeing it and to reading The Wretch because I never had a chance to. and But I understand that we don't know a lot about the character. And do you plan to keep it fairly you know, secret? It's always going to be that way. I mean, um, there was no way to explain this to people in 1996, but uh, now you can explain it to them as, uh, you know, imagine the town from Stranger Things. Imagine it had a superhero and that superhero was just as weird as the town. So it's he's kind of he's kind of this mute um bizarre superhero whose powers change from you know story to story as needed you never learn anything about him you never know if he's human you never know if it's a man or a woman um but he's sort of this ultimate ultimate deus ex machina that sort of drops in and and helps me uh actually he's a device for storytelling experiments and so it's just a a chance for me to, you know, stretch some storytelling muscles with each new wretch story. I like that approach. Uh, I remember back when Wolverine came out, we didn't know much about Wolverine. And then they started to reveal more and more. And then to me, it felt like, well, I lost some of the magic when I knew too much about his background. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I think I tweeted something about that the other day that it was, you know, I, I think I even said when, when he was a mystery, he was the business. And now he is a business, you know. It happens to everything. You kill the golden goose. I mean, mm -hmm. because he was so interesting, you couldn't resist him. And because you couldn't resist him, you had to fill in all those blank spaces that, that made him so interesting. The same thing with the first image of Batman. You're like, oh, man, what's this guy? You know, what's this guy all about? And he's been having every last crack filled in for the last you know, <laughs> 75 years until, you know, you know how many, you know, exactly how many pets he's had. And, you know, same thing with Superman. It's sort of the tough balancing act when you create a popular character. Thankfully, I've never created a popular character, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, it's a real challenge for the writers trying to keep it fresh when you know, sometimes fans complain, oh, they're just recycling things now. They're running out of ideas. And really, for a good writer, they, they can always put a new spin on it, some new approach to it without having to yeah. fill in every little detail, still make it kind of a mystery and a story, an exciting story to read. Yeah, I mean, we think about characters like Tarzan or, or Conan or Nancy Drew. They've been around forever, and people are still finding new angles. You know, the characters also change over time, too. I mean, Superman is not the character he was in, you know, 1940 or 1960 or even 1980. He's 
he's a completely new character every time around. So to every new generation, it's, it's a reintroduction, which is what is cool. What is, I guess, infuriating about superheroes to older fans, but what is to me <laughs> exciting about superheroes is that every generation discovers those superheroes for themselves. And, um, they mean some, you know, whatever, like, you know, like we were talking about that issue, Iron Man, um, I think that's the best run of Iron Man. <laughs> you know? um, objectively, it might not be. I think it is. You know, you know, it's sort of a that John Romita Jr. Bob Layton era. You know, uh, is is my favorite. Uh, but um, you know, each generation. So there's a kid coming out now that you know, a kid who's an adult now whose favorite era of Iron Man's. You know. The Adi Granov era, you know, it's just things change, and it's it's what's it's what's both frustrating and exciting about comics. I think is that there's always that constant churn. Yeah, no, that Michelinian Layton era is one of the most definitive eras because prior to that, I know George Tuska was working on the book, doing the art, and then for a while there, and this is about where I came in, the art team started to mix up, and I still liked it a lot because that's when I got into the book. Um, I mean, you had Herb Trimpey on there sometimes, and there would be these yeah. series of two-part stories. So I, I knew I'd get to the end, you know, as long as I can get to my local comic shop. I didn't have a local comic shop. As long as I could get to my 7-Eleven and get my copy. Yes. Uh, so right. it was a little, little dicey, but um, I managed to. And But it was fun to see a change up every two issues. But yeah, it really hadn't found its footing yet until Michelinie and Leighton got on there. Oh, I agree. Yeah. So when do you think uh, the Retro will get on the market, this omnibus, 2018 perhaps? Well, uh, the best thing you can do is go to the Omaha Bound website, and they have a place there you can pre-buy. Um, and there are different premiums you can get by, by pre-ordering it. And, um, gosh, they are the printer. So, <laughs> I mean, they're, they really are just waiting on me. So would this wind up in Diamond Catalog? Uh, I think we're going to offer it exclusively to those pre-buyers first, and then yes. I wanted to ask you about uh, some difficulty you had a couple years ago, and when I read about it, I thought, wow, that's a great story to share with people, overcoming that, because a lot of other creators go through some of those same things. And you had a really tough time with heart problems and vision, like almost back-to-back. Yeah, they were concurrent, which was discouraging, uh, (laughs) because... Uh, I didn't have very many vices at all, except I worked too much and I ate like a jerk. Um, I ate abusively and because I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't take any drugs of any kind. So I would reward myself with food. So if I was stressed, I'd eat. If I was happy, I'd eat. If I was bummed out, I'd eat. Combine that with um, staying up crazy hours drinking way too much caffeine to stay up late. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you stay up till three in the morning at two o'clock, you get hungry again, you know? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I had, you know, I had terrible eating habits and terrible work habits and they all caught up with me at the same time. And my blood pressure just went through the roof like crazy high. And it led to a uh, cardiomyopathy in my heart, which, which meant that my heart was sort of crushing itself because it was trying to, it was pumping so hard that it wasn't functioning properly. But And since it wasn't functioning properly, it was pumping hard to keep up. So it was just in this slow loop where it was going to crush itself. And if I didn't change my ways, and I mean really change my ways, 
uh, would, would not make it. So I had to do stuff like be very serious about like, well, I, (laughs) I had a day where I quit sugar, salt, and caffeine, you know, on the same day. Oh, Oh, man, what's left? (laughs) (laughs) Well, nothing. Cause I already quit drinking and I never smoked. I mean, I never drank and I never smoked. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm glad I didn't because my doctor said, if you, if you had been a drinker, you wouldn't have made it. You would have died. Oh man. Uh, So, uh, I had to quit all those things and, and basically, I mean, chemically become Mormon at that point, um, which I was close to, (laughs) except for the caffeine. (laughs) So, uh, the caffeine had to go too, which was my, my closest friend. And, um, uh, and I had to scale back on my working, which at the time wasn't hard because I didn't feel good. My work was slow and it wasn't up to my usual standards. And I was just like, why is this taking so long? Am I just getting old? You know? And it was because, you know, I didn't feel good because of my heart. It was easy to scale back on work. But in the middle of all that, I also noticed that bright lights were really bothering me. And I thought it was a symptom of my all my blood pressure medications I was on. I should say I lost a lot of weight in about six months, lost about 100 pounds. Mm. And then with that and my drug therapy, my blood pressure is completely normal now. And my heart functions. At, at one point, I was down to my heart functioning at about 30% of a normal heart. And now I'm at 97%. So I'm basically, as long as I'm you know, on these on these drugs... And I'm not on the same amount I used to be, but as long as I'm on these drugs, I'm, I'm okay. But during all that, um, I found out I had an eye condition called Fuchs dystrophy, which is a, I don't want to get too technical, but it is a, a swelling of your eye, of the, the surface of your eye that you go through every night when you sleep. And when you wake up, it drains slowly. So it's an edema in the sort of the coating of your eye that goes over your lens. And as those edemas recede, they leave minute scar tissue behind. And eventually, the scar tissue will build up over the course of a few years to resemble a cataract. But instead of on your lens, it's on the surface of your eye and you can't see through it. The only surefire remedy for it is a transplant. And I was lucky that um, I live near the University of Iowa and they have kind of a world-class eye clinic that pioneered this um, minimally invasive kind of um, cornea transplant that I underwent. It was immediately successful and I was immediately seeing better right away. And that's something that snuck up on you because you didn't even realize this was happening. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'm getting old. Um, Mm -hmm. I went to my eye doctor and he's like, oh, you've got this disease. And I was like, well, how come you didn't catch that two years ago? He goes, (laughs) it's genetic. It doesn't kick in until you're about 50. And he goes, and you actually didn't have it at all last time you were in here. And now you've got a rapidly um, advancing moderate case. And by the time of my transplant, I actually had a pretty advanced case. So, yeah, it's... And for me, that was more depressing than my own heart <laughs> issue. Like, I could, I, I could come to terms with dying, but I could not come to terms with not being able to draw, I guess, somehow. Psychologically, I couldn't... It was harder to do. Yeah, I don't think people realize, and I know I've been through this too, where I have a situation. I have, I got like psoriatic arthritis, and like, like what you went through, and just what I had is nothing like what you went through. But what you went through, medical science is not perfect. It takes a while to diagnose what you have. They have right. to figure out what the problem is. You know, same thing with me. They didn't know what the problem was, so it took a while just to figure it out. Because I was at the point where I was limping, and I couldn't get around. 
And That's right. I didn't know was uh, um oh one second please. Hey Nolan, this is my son. Hey buddy, I'm on a call right now. Can I can I help you in a bit? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Because I need you to sign in so I can do Okay. Make a thumbs up. When I'm done, okay? And uh take the doggy. <laughs> you shall <laughs> my door. <laughs> he has his tablet. He's playing he's six. He's uh Oh wow. Yeah, he he's playing Minecraft. He's like crazy about Minecraft. And my other son is uh one. Oh gosh. Uh, anyway, so so yeah, figuring out what the problem is, it's not just simple. It, it's like it's like detective work. Now that impacted um, your progress on shipwreck. Did you actually go back and redraw some stuff? No, I did, I never redrew anything. Um, okay. I started it with my old corneas, and then in the middle of the first issue, underwent a transplant on my uh, left eye, and then. Finished that issue with an old and a new cornea, and then um, the sec in the middle of the second issue underwent the transplant on my right eye. So, you know, over the course of the first three issues, I did it with three different sets of eyes. I can't, I don't know who they are, but I can I can never thank enough the the donors and their families that um, uh, made that possible. I can tell you, reading the book, because I've been reading it, I didn't notice any difference. It wasn't apparent to me. As far as like, you know, how the art looked, it looked fine. It got faster. I got faster. Mm, That's, okay. There's a lot of drawing and redrawing, and it took a while for me to, you know, for that all to settle down. Because you have to spend some time with your eye packed with a dressing, you know. So while, I, while my eye was covered, I couldn't draw at all. But once it was uncovered, there's a little, they put a little bubble of nitrogen in your eye to hold the graft in place. And... You can't see through that bubble um, until it diminishes. And it diminishes over about a week on its own. And you also can't fly when you have one of those bubbles in. And that's what kept me from going to the awesome world premiere of Suicide Squad. In, oh. in New um, I was invited to go, but could not go because I could not fly with that bubble in my eye. It was not an inexpensive process, but fortunately you have like medical coverage for that type of thing. Yeah. My wife's a, a public school teacher, so she has a good insurance. It covered all that. And when I was a freelancer and her plan didn't cover family, it does now. We're in one of the rare school systems that, that covers families. I always bought my own insurance no matter how expensive it was because I was just so paranoid about my kids not being covered. And I'm glad I was like that because it... Uh, you know, when you're in your 20s, you feel sort of invulnerable. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you can bounce back from just about anything at that point. <laughs> yeah, and it just slowly wears away the older you get. And, you know, when you're in your 40s, it becomes like, oh, it's possible. It's possible that my body could break down. And then when you're in your 50s, your body's like, I am breaking down. Yeah. Yeah, mortality hits. It's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> it's real. And it's coming for you. And... uh so, yeah, you start to use all that stuff that you didn't think you'd use someday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know some creators, they don't have insurance or have gone with long stretches without insurance, and it's very hard for them. I understand why, because it's impossible. Oh, yeah. It's so expensive. Um, I sacrificed a lot to make sure we had it when we didn't, because I was just so, I considered it as essential as, you know, paying the electricity. It's good there's something out there like Heroes Initiative to help those creators who've been out there who might need some assistance. Yeah. And I do, a lot, I do a lot with them um, because I understand there's, I mean, I understood it um, before I had a rough patch. I understood what it was like, but 
when I consider if I were single and I'm going through all this, I may not have even gone to the doctor. It would have been a much different outcome for me. And I probably would have, you know, needed the help of someplace like the Hero Initiative. I knew that intellectually beforehand. And, you know, I... (laughs) I'm, I consider charitable organizations and giving and volunteering an important part of my life, but it was an intellectual thing before that. And now it is, um, there's an emotional connection both to that and to um, organ donor awareness. So those two things have taken a more prominent role in my life. Yes. I uh, was not an organ donor when I was younger. And then after I got married, my wife's looking at me going, why not? I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was, was, I was, was in from a common sense perspective. I was like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm an organ donor. Um, but after you go through it, there's, you get a different, um, emotional connection to it as well. Now, right now you're still working on blood blister and, uh, Tony Harris is doing the art. Now I know it's coming back in January. Um, are you drawing an issue of that coming up or is Tony going to stay on the book? Speaking, speaking of artists going through rough patches, um, I, you know, I, I'll let Tony talk about it when and if he's ever wanting to, but <clears throat> he's, he's, he hit a rough patch that kind of prevented him from finishing the series. And we thought probably the best way to proceed would be for me to, for me to at least lay it out and then let Eric Layton, who is Tony's inker on the book, finish my work. So it, it will still have that consistency, that same finish that I had when Tony was doing it. Um, but it'll be my, um, drawing underneath it. It gives that continuity to it. You know, you have the same anchor. It really helps. No Tony Harris, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you picked him because he had the right look for the book that you wanted. Oh. And you thought, well, I can't, I, I can't really, I'm not the right person for it. So now how do you feel? <laughs> you feel ready for I'm it? I'm still not the right person for it. <laughs> like I, I look at all these scripts I wrote for Tony and I'm like, oh, I don't want to draw a bus. You know, <laughs> I know Tony, Tony would kill drawing all these people on the bus, but I don't want to draw that. So yeah, I it, I'm sort of painted myself in a corner, but um, it'll be good for me as an artist to, you know, you need to <laughs> you need to do stuff you're not good at as an artist. It's like if you're a weightlifter, it's like leg day, you know. Right. You got leg day, and if you're an artist, you've got to draw the stuff you don't want to draw. It's the only way to grow. That's right. So that'll be four issues. So the next two issues will be out next year, early next year. And you're also working on Future Quest Presents. Number five is the next one. Uh, Birdman coming up. There's a three-part Birdman arc coming up. And um, yeah, that's for me, the headline is that Steve Rude's drawing it, which is super exciting for me because I'm a, I'm a, even though he's only 10 years older than I am, he's, he's, I've been a fan of his since I was a kid. And um, since I first saw Nexus in a comic book shop, Um, my very first comic book shop, actually, I walked into it and I saw you know, the regular superhero comics that were out there. And then I turned a corner and there was this black and white section that had Nexus, Love and Rockets, and Cerebus all side by side. I scooped those up. <laughs> you know, <And> I was like, <laughs> what is this world I don't know about, you know? And Dark Horse Presents was there as well. And it um, just really took me away. I've been a huge fan of Steve and, and getting to work with him is like a, a real dream come true. Every once in a while we're working on it, I'll I'll describe a character and he'll be like, well, just send me a sketch of what you think they look like. And I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> I'm showing you my artwork. <laughs> Did you um, watch the original cartoon? I know it was probably a little before your time. No, it was way before my time. Um, I don't remember it either. 
I mean, <laughs> I remember Space Ghost because mm-hmm. it lived in reruns, but Birdman kind of fell away um, and didn't have that second life. So I, I didn't see Birdman until later in life. Did you see the uh, Harvey Birdman Attorney oh, Law yeah. spoof for that? Yeah, I saw that? yeah, I've got the DVD set. I love that show. The, especially the first two seasons are hilarious. So the tone we're trying to strike with our series is something that um, is still a straight adventure, but kind of has room for humor in it. Um, I mean, it's a serious story. It's a deep kind of, in some ways it has some, I guess because I'm writing it, it's got some horror undertones, some existential horror (laughs) to it. Um, But also we wanted to inject some of that irreverent, um, you know, Harvey Birdman uh, humor into it. So um, we decided that uh, his, his companion Eagle Avenger should be able to talk to him in a way that the audience can hear. Uh, and that also that Avenger should be a smart ass. So there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of, um, a lot of Birdman, you know, spouting these sort of anachronistic superhero dialogue and then Avenger undercutting him at every turn, you know? So it's, it's, that's where we find our humor in that series. And that's the, the first one's coming out, the first of the three part on 1220, right before Christmas. Stocking stuffers, kids. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it's a three part arc. And, um, it's, it's some of the best stuff Steve's done in a long time. I mean, I'm a big fan of Steve, so he's never disappointed me. I, I think it's amazing that even though he's been at this for so long, that he can, that he's still growing and still getting better. Probably my favorite stuff he's done of late is those Nexus newspaper. I have them. Yes. I did subscribe to those. Yeah, I did too. And it's sort of on that level. It's pretty amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. I know probably Birdman's one of his favorite characters too, because I see him doing a lot of sketches of that. It's Toth, and you know he's he's a Toth guy, like so. Yeah, he's really bringing it home. I just want to bring up another artist too. Um, this goes back a ways, but I did read the uh, Flash season zero. I think that's the first stretch of Flash I've ever read all the way through because I really liked your art for that book. Thanks. And you were working with uh, an inker, Eric Gapster, is that right? Yeah. Do you work with him quite a bit? Because he's working on. Shipwreck as well, I believe. Yes. He sort of became, um, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe five years ago or so, Andy decided that my usual anchor, the guy has been inking me for decades, Andy Parks, mm-hmm. um, decided he wanted to make transition to writing more. And so he's like, ah, enough of this inking. And you need to find a new inker. And I was like, what? How am I going to do that? <laughs> and thankfully, uh, I met Eric when he was, in school at Iowa State University, um, I was just up doing a signing at the local comic shop, Mayhem, and he dropped by and showed me his work. And I, I could tell he had a lot of, he was very, like, very much influenced by Bill, Bill Waterson. And I could tell that, you know, if he wanted a future in comic strips, he could go get it. So while he pursued that, he thought, well, maybe I'll pick up a little extra money inking also, because he was always a big comic book fan as well. He's big, big Superman and Legion of Superheroes fan just the way his wife's career has gone, it's brought him to live pretty near me. He lives about 25 minutes away from me. So I thought, man, maybe he's the guy. And we did some test test pages together and they turned out well. And um, so he sort of became and is sort of my regular anchor now. I mean, Andy's inking me on a lot of stuff now. Again, Eric's such a talented artist that I knew the day would come and it has come uh, that he's getting a lot of work also now as a penciler. 
Uh, he inks, he still inks me on Shipwreck and a few occasional projects, but he's the regular artist on an Aftershock book called Animosity, The Rise. So I just have some fun questions for you as we wrap up. Uh, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? What's that? I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I get that a lot from people working in the arts. Yes. What are you talking about? Um, well, now that I'm trying to stay fit more than I used to, I try to, I like to hike. Um, that's one of my... Almost every vacation our family takes now has an element of hiking in it somehow. And kayaking, we like to kayak as well. But as far as activities go, I I love listening to old-time radio. I'm a Red Sox fan. I like to play fantasy football. Um, I'm in an actual I'm in a fantasy football league that's actually comprised of um, all comic book professionals or their offspring. Um, and it's got some some names people would recognize, I think, in it. And uh, so, yeah, that's sort of what I, my kids, are, my kids are grown now and often college. My son's a grad student. My daughter's entering her last year of college. So what I used to define myself, you know, as being a dad, a stay at home dad, and that's all been gone for a few years now. Where are some of the places you've been hiking when you go on vacation? Oh gosh, we go to the, you know, we like to go to national parks or, or whatever, I'm, I live in Iowa, which is geographically one of the least interesting states. <laughs> I mean, it's it's awesome. I mean, like, stuff grows here on its own. Like, <laughs> there's a thing here. I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but we have a thing here called volunteer corn, which is corn that grows by itself um, without being planted. So, I mean, it's fertile ground, but it's also really um, geographically pretty boring outside of the, the Missouri and Mississippi River Valleys. So uh, we've been to pretty much every state park in the area, every state park in the surrounding states. Um, but I have to say, I really enjoyed Yellowstone a lot. Um, Yellowstone's probably some of our favorite hiking. Hmm. That's one place I haven't been to yet, and uh, I'll have to get there because we like to do a lot of that too, going to national and state parks. I live in Delaware, so we have beaches that are very nice, but uh, it's not really exciting geographically. It's, it's hilly in some places, but there are no mountains or anything, so it's, you know... <laughs> I have to go elsewhere for hiking. Love Colorado too. Love hiking in Colorado as well. Do you have a, this is a hypothetical question. Do you have an island book? If you were stuck on a deserted island, is there one book that you would want to have with you or one book that you haven't read that you want to get to? Haven't read or, or done? Well, either one. Some people have a hard time thinking of a book they want to have with <laughs> them. And they say, well, this is an opportunity to read something I've never read. Oh, well, no, not particularly. I mean, um, you know, I, I have gone for, I, I used to read a lot more than I do now. Um, and I've gone from just tearing through books, both comics and, you know, prose, um, to instead reading one thing and just sort of really trying to get it, <laughs> mm -hmm. like really trying to understand it. So I wouldn't say there's like one thing I, I, I really wish I've read that I haven't. I will say, uh, as far as comics go, my sort of my desert island comic is, is the the Lee and Kirby run on Fantastic Four? Um, Great choice. I think that, especially the back half of it, you know, um, I think it's pretty incredible. Like, there are just so many ideas that come so fast and furious through that book. Um, and then Stan knows the way to sort of shine up Kirby's, you know, really outrageous ideas and make them relatable in a way that um, that makes the drama a lot more potent. Definitely the world's greatest comic magazine. Still love those old issues. Now my final question, and I you know, I know you've made a lot of changes to your diet and lifestyle and I was going to say what's your beverage of choice? Now it's not going to be alcohol. Uh, no oh, caffeine. No. So is there something you enjoy? 
take some pleasure in? Yes. Uh, diet orange soda has become my new thing. Um, and I never, re- I'm never, I was always a Coke guy, straight Coke and then diet Coke. And then now occasionally a caffeine free diet Coke, which is basically bubbly brown water. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I have to say that I do enjoy, um, diet orange pop. That's sort of my go-to. <laughs> and outside, outside of that, you know, like sparkling water, like San Pellegrino or, or Perrier or whatever. Yeah. I enjoy that. If I want something during the work day, I'm trying to steer clear of sodas. I drink diet sodas, but I know they're not great for me. So I figure, well, let me just get something carbonated like sparkling water. So I'll pretend that it's diet soda and it's, it's better for me. Yeah. I need the bubbles. Just interesting. Well, Phil, thanks so much for being on creator talks. And I look forward to blood blister returning and to Birdman arriving in time for the holidays. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for talking with me. And thank you, Phil Hester. Now, here's how you can win two tickets for the New Jersey Comic Expo. A weekend pass good Saturday and Sunday, November 18th and 19th at the New Jersey Convention and Exposition Center in Edison, New Jersey, USA. As you know, I am on Twitter, at Creator Talks Pod. So when there is a new episode with an interview, I post it on Twitter. So when you see that post, follow me, Retweet the post and comment with the hashtag NJCE. That's all you have to do. The contest runs until Friday, November 10th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. After that date, I will select the winner and post that person on Twitter. Simply DM me back with all the information I ask for to claim your tickets. Now, this isn't the U.S., this isn't New Jersey, so you have to be close enough to drive because you're not providing transportation and hotel accommodations. But two weekend passes is a $100 value. Now, if you don't win, don't panic. Tickets will still be available online. But you might want to hold out and see if you do win a pair by entering this contest. Let me tell you a bit about the New Jersey Comic Expo. It is a family-friendly celebration of comic books and everything pop culture, and it does take place on November 18th and 19th, the week before Thanksgiving here in the U.S., at the New Jersey Convention and Expo Center in Edison, New Jersey. It's a place for comic book fans, geeks, and creatives to come together as a community and revel in the fun and entertainment with events featuring the Liberty Science Center, cosplay, workshops, celebrity and creator guests, and a lot more. Guests include Ethan Van Sciver, Jay Lee, Bob Almond, Dennis Calero, Amy Chu, Colleen Doran, Garth Ennis, Meredith Finch, Larry Hama, and many more, including Shane Hurricane Helms, pro wrestling's greatest superhero and longest reigning world cruiserweight champion. So follow me, retweet the episode with the comment, hashtag NJCE. Good luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. 
In addition, on the site I will be posting my recommended reading picks as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works, and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.